Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm. In tonight's program, we have a special focus on Puerto Rico. The current economic crisis on the island has led to some of the highest levels of unemployment in the U.S. and has forced many Puerto Ricans, from newly graduated students to doctors and many others, to migrate in search of new job opportunities. Meanwhile, the United States Congress has done little to aid the U.S. territory and bring relief to its people. The situation has brought new light to its long colonial history and the struggle of the Puerto Rican people to resolve the island's colonial status. In tonight's program, we revisit one of the most victorious struggles of the Puerto Rican people, the fight to remove the U.S. Navy from the island of Yeques, with a veteran of the struggle, Robert Rabin. He'll also share a little bit about the community radio station, Radio Vieques. We also look to present-day Puerto Rico and a new generation of salsa musicians with the band Orquesta El Macabeo, who are keeping one of the island's rich musical genres alive, but in a new way y con muchísimo sabor. So stay tuned. Next, we'll hear an interview with Robert Rabin, director of the Museum of Fortin Conde de Mirasol in Vieques, Puerto Rico. The interview was recorded earlier this year in Vieques, Puerto Rico. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I have the pleasure of being in Vieques, Puerto Rico. I am right now at the Fortin Conde de Mirasol, the Fort of Vieques, a beautiful and historic building managed by the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture. And I have the pleasure of being joined by the director of the Fort Count Mirasol Museum, Roberto Rabin. Thank you so much, Roberto, for taking the time to speak to us about the rich history of Vieques and the community that lives here. Hey, bueno, thank you, Vanessa, for coming and for the interest in Vieques. Well, Roberto, you are originally from Boston. Tell me how you made it to Vieques. I am not Puerto Rican, but I am originally from Boston. I'm as gringo as gringo can be, down to the bone marrow. But I have had the privilege of living my adult life here in Vieques. So Spanish has been my principal language most of, you know, for all of my adult life. And the culture of Vieques has sort of become uh, a very important element in my culture as well, but I am, you know, gringo uh, uh, on my parents' side. <laughs> so, uh, again, I live here with great uh, admiration and thankfulness to the people of Puerto Rico and particularly the people of Vieques. And then how did you move to Vieques? I came to Vieques when I was 25, which was more than 25 years ago. And I came to do three weeks of research for a thesis about the military presence its impact on the island and the people's resistance. Uh, this was for a graduate program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, my alma mater. Alma mater. And uh, it was an interdisciplinary project in uh, sociology, history, political science. And I came to do three weeks of research in the summer of 1980. The plan was, I was teaching bilingual education in Boston at the time. I planned to come during the three week summer vacation, do some interviews and go back and I did everything but go back. So I had, you know, things happened, the mysteries of life and the wonderfulness of those mysteries have allowed me to stay here and work in the community and with the community. And so I taught high school history in the 1980s for about 10 years. And since 1990, direct this project for the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture. 
We'll talk a little bit about the military presence in a bit, but the institute actually houses Radio Vieques, or the local community radio station. Tell us a little bit how that project began. Sure. Radio Vieques grew out of the struggle for peace and justice here, out of the struggle to stop U.S. military bombing and presence on Vieques. And the Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques, the principal grassroots community organization in the struggle to stop the U.S. military activity here. And once we had this wonderful victory on May 1st, 2003 and stopped the bombing, our committee began to use different mechanisms to continue this process in the post-bombing phase for the struggles to get the cleanup done, the environmental cleanup of the military area, get the lands back in the hands of the community, to push for sustainable community-controlled development and to deal with the health crisis, among other things. And we luckily, through a friend, uh, Luis Alfonso Melendez, who was in Radio World, talked to us about a possible license for an FM community radio station that covered this area. And we jumped on the case and started to work and uh, for about six years uh, worked on that to finally come up with the funding and get things ready. So in September 2013, uh, we started our transmission. And it's a really great project that involves children from the schools, people from the community, a focus on children, young people, women, and older folks, people who are generally marginalized in commercial radio. And obviously the project has a mission that is to continue these struggles for peace and justice here on Vegas. And Radio Vieques happens to be an affiliate of the Pacifica Network as well. Yes. We knew of Pacifica many, many years ago. I remember in the early 80s, some Pacifica reporters ended up in Vieques. I don't remember for which stations in particular, but uh, covering the military presence. And, and I can remember one reporter who was here in 1983. We were in the middle of a big campaign uh, during military maneuvers, protests. And this was just at the time of the... Um, overthrow by the U.S. Uh, military and government of Maurice Bishop in Grenada, the New Jew movement. And Vieques was used by the U.S. military to prepare for that invasion. And so we were very keyed into that topic. And this really wonderful woman who had actually been in Grenada at the moment Maurice Bishop was being arrested and taken away. And so we knew about the importance of, of Pacifica. And when we started this station, uh, we started to contact Pacifica and Eventually, we, we've, um, from the beginning, used Democracy Now! on our regular programming. We have another great Pacifica program called Informativo Pacifica, produced in Los Angeles about uh, Latin American news. Really great program. And last year, I had the honor of receiving a call from some members of the National Board to be a member, you know, suggesting I might be on the National Board as an affiliate representative. So I did that, and uh, pretty much right up until now, I'm just sort of ending this one-year term. It's been a great uh, eye-opening experience and, and a really great opportunity. So Pacifica is very much a part of Vieques, uh, Radio Vieques, and I'm hoping Radio Vieques will continue to be part of Pacifica. Well, that's wonderful. It's nice to be connecting with a sister station. Well, you've already talked a little bit about the military presence here in Vieques, and I think Vieques has become a symbol for Puerto Rican resistance to U.S. colonialism. As we know, Puerto Rico is one of few remaining colonial territories, the island has never gained its full independence. And Vieques, much like the rest of Puerto Rico, has experienced a long history of U.S. military presence on the island. Tell us a little bit about that history when it began and what was taking place here in Vieques in terms of U.S. military operation. The U.S. military presence, uh, particularly the Navy and the Marines, although it's really every branch of the military, U.S. military and NATO and other U.S. allies were invited by the U.S. to use Vieques over the more than half century of their presence here, beginning in the 1940s. But this can only be understood in the context of this U.S.-Puerto Rico colonial relationship. It's key to understand that relationship to, to be able to fathom how this type of horrendous oppression uh, could have taken place. Um, in the 1940s, the U.S. military, through the U.S. Congress, took over approximately 72% of Vieques' lands. And this was part of a larger Puerto Rico-wide and even larger Caribbean-wide U.S. militarization project in the 1940s. So in Vieques, the Navy took uh, 8,000 acres on the western end of the island, the most fertile lands, closing down the most important sugar activity, the Playa Grande sugar mill taking the best, the most fertile lands, the most important aquifers, lagoons, the highest point in Vieques topography, the closest connecting point to the main island, 
creating a real serious issue for transportation between the islands. And the Navy also took 15,000 acres on the eastern end. That was also agricultural land principally. Thousands of people living on both zones that were forcibly moved into the center of the island. And on the eastern end, the Navy set up its bombing range and maneuver areas, some barracks. The western end was used principally for storing weapons, military artifacts, about 150 garage-like structures built at the hillsides. Uh, but on the eastern end, the Navy did their most diabolic activity, the bombing and practicing for uh, military aggressions against peoples in the Caribbean and Latin Americans throughout the world. The Navy, the U.S. military rented out VIEC at the private companies to test weapons systems, invited NATO countries and other allies to use VIECs. The VIECs was you know, constantly bombed from jets, ships, tanks, bazookas, mortars of the Navy, and other people experimented with you know, new weapons. The, the U.S. and NATO military dropped on VIEC every weapon in the arsenals uh, from uh, about 1940 to 2003. Including, including chemical weapons. Including different types of chemical weapons, napalm, and depleted uranium weapons as well. So there are extensive studies to show the horrendous effects on the environment, on the health of people here, Vieques, on the food chain, the water, the air, tense contamination by military toxics, a long list of heavy metals, cancer-causing agents that we believe are responsible for the high cancer rate on Vieques. So the Navy presence, again, was over half a century long, included horrendous uh, use of Vieques, land, air, and sea, and its people, and this, again, to prepare for uh, a long list of U.S. aggressions against sister countries here in the Caribbean and throughout the world, the invasion of Grenada in 1983, the attempted uh, invasion of Cuba in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, throughout the Vietnam War, the invasion of the Dominican Republic when the U.S. sent 17,000 Marines to, to make sure a pro-U.S. government got put in power. Throughout the 70s, 80s, the uh, barbaric U.S. military activity and support for the cruelest dictators in, in Latin America and Central America, the Somosas and, and the Duvaliers in Haiti and the Salvadorian military governments, the uh, Chilean junta. Uh, so it was really you know, horrible to see Vieques be destroyed, to see the island, the people uh, so terribly treated and mistreated. And this all to do even, in some cases, more horrible things to other people throughout the world. And I've heard terrifying stories of daily life here in Vieques as a result of military presence, not just because of the bombing, but U.S. military's treatment of uh, Viequenses or Puerto Ricans living in yeah. Vieques. Yeah, particularly for women in the 50s and 60s, there were notable moments of intense violence by, you know, these hordes of young U.S. military men. And, like, you know, my guess is that any place in the world and, and with any military, you get a whole bunch of young men who are between 18 and 22 and they're in a horrific condition of war or preparing for war. And, and you know, they have a few days or a week of liberty, right? They're on leave and they want to, they're going to get drunk and look for women. And this is a horrific combination to bring a lot of violence. And so, yeah, it's also because of the economic crisis brought on by the Navy. Uh, there was a lot of prostitution in Vieques, more bars per capita than I think any place else in Puerto Rico. Lots of riots, fights, violence, the death of several people can be um, mentioned related to this. Mapepe Christian was a, an older man in the Barrio Destino here in 1953, Easter weekend, killed, beaten to death by a group of drunken Marines and, and others. Uh, this was a young boy killed in front of Camp Garcia, one of the main military facilities here in the uh, early 60s by a, a, a guard who just pulled out his gun and shot this young kid. A group of young kids were playing in the area and he was irritated by their playing. Um, so it was a, a serious issue, the violence against people of all ages and you know, women, men, children. Have an intimate history with a struggle to get the U.S. Navy and military out of Vieques. Tell us a little bit about your experience in that fight and what it was like and how Viequenses were able to finally be victorious in getting the U.S. Navy and military to leave the island. Sure. 
Before I arrived in Vieques and before I was born, people on Vieques were struggling against the Navy. Right from the very arrival in the 1940s, there were different types of struggle here. Um, and in the 1970s, I learned about Vieques in Boston uh, because of the protest by local fishermen who blocked the NATO maneuvers. People were arrested in May 7, May of 1979. 21 people were arrested. One of them, Angel Rodriguez Cristobal from Ciales, Puerto Rico, was killed in the Tallahassee Federal Prison where he was serving a six-month sentence for trespassing uh, during one of the protests. He had come over to support fishermen and was one of, um, one of those arrested on, on 19 uh, May of 1979, died, beaten to death in his jail cell in Tallahassee on 11 November 1979. So these, the topic really seemed to be like an important topic for a thesis I was working on at the time, uh, the topic of Chile, and uh, decided to change the topic as I knew, learned more about Vieques, and, and that's how I ended up coming here. And, and uh, so from the very beginning, I mean, I came, you know, somewhat as an intruder, and, uh, you know, we gringos can be pretty imponente, right? We want to impose ourselves on things that we, I think many times think we know everything. And, and so I, I, I learned quickly, you know, in, in that moment of uh, great lack of maturity um, uh, in, in community struggles, uh, you know, I, I started to learn the importance of humility, and I'm, I'm still working on that now. But and I, I'm very lucky to sort of hook up with Nilda, Nilda Medina, who's been my compañera pretty much uh, most of these 35 years. Nilda is a Puerto Rican woman, a very strong uh, uh, community leader and, you know, worker for Puerto Rican independence and, and all things good. And so she's been, for me, probably the most important role model. And, uh, and it was kind of through her that I, I was able to participate in the, in the struggle. And, yeah, so I, I, you know, both of us worked together in uh, cultural activities related to the struggle, always trying as we worked in the schools together as well for a about a decade, we always had the military presence as part of our curriculum, even though the Department of Education didn't want it there. Uh, so we had a lot of, you know, struggles in the schools as well. I was participating with the different community groups that existed in the 80s and, uh, um, and 90s and right up until 2003. And the Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques was, uh, again, a group that, um, together with Nilda, Ismael Guadalupe, one of the historic leaders of the struggle, and several others who had been involved in the 70s and 80s, we created this group in uh, March of 1993, the Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques. And there was a significant amount of civil, dis uh, civil disobedience. Yeah. Uh, civil disobedience was the key element of the protest between 1999 and 2003. Uh, April 19th, 1999, the jet fighter pilot dropped two bombs on the Navy's own observation post here in Vieques, killing a local Viequense uh, civilian security guard, David Sanes, and that death shook the consciousness of the people of Vieques in Puerto Rico, like no other event had ever done. And the, and the environment was ripe for people to organize and become more militant, more active. The Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques has several years already of organizing and good contacts, a good network of support. And uh, so from the beginning of that struggle, uh, our committee was a key element in that process. And civil disobedience, I mean, it was, you know, it was Martin Luther King and it was Gandhi, but all of this a la Viequense, right? I mean, people in Vieques and Puerto Rico created their own version. And, you know, eventually we realized we were doing something that wasn't brand new. And, uh, and, and we did start to pay some attention to Gandhi and then Martin Luther King thought and actions <coughs> and understand the importance for solidarity. Uh, but yeah, uh, at least a million people participated. I have no doubt about that because there was people throughout the, the Puerto Rican nation and the archipelago here and the diaspora. And people throughout the world in different moments, people in Australia and people in, um, in, in Ecuador and people in the Philippines and uh, so, so many, Italy and Rome, you know. Uh, so, again, there were, I think, 1,500 people arrested, actually, 1,500 people who spent some time in prison. Uh, you know, people, the, the maximum was six months. And I, I think, you know, most people spent a few days, a few weeks. The mayor of Vieques at the time spent three months, and, and I think there were three of us who got the full six months, which was the, the, you know, the, the, the maximum amount in the federal prison in Puerto Rico. Um, but the civil disobedience actions were really intense, interesting, dangerous. You know, some people would get arrested. We had brigades of people who would cut the perimeter fence and put people, just get people inside and on the perimeter road. And so when the military, you know, uh, patrol people would come by, they'd see them, stop, arrest them. Uh, that's how we had a lot of some of the high-profile high, high profile figure people uh, like Jesse Jackson's wife, Jacqueline, and, 
and Reverend Al Sharpton, among others. Other people went in uh, by boat, two, three in the morning, out to the bombing range itself, and when the bombing was about to start, would shoot up a flare, make their presence known with a, you know, white flags, so that they would have to stop, hopefully, uh, not bomb, and then come and arrest everybody. And I remember my second arrest. Uh, we were uh, in the bombing range, uh, and I remember I, I was paired up with the deacon of the Catholic Church who went in, well, we went in by water. Two fishermen brought us all in in small fishing boats about two in the morning, dropped us off in the, in the sand right just, just beyond the bombing range. Large-scale maneuvers, NATO maneuvers at the time. Everybody was asleep, I guess, they didn't see us. So we just you know, waited for first light. And uh, I remember uh, with, with the deacon of the Catholic Church, uh, Justino Lopez, que padre cancer, died of cancer a couple years ago. We walked to what we thought was the bombing range, you know, in a place where we thought we you know, would, would uh, make ourselves seen at some point. But we wanted to hold that off as long as possible to be able to, you know, hold up the maneuvers. Because as soon as we got in, the fishermen went back to the Peace and Justice Camp, which was the Committee for the Rescue and Development Headquarters, so that people would send out a press release and it would be all of a sudden on the news. So we would hope the Navy would, because it was this deacon of the Catholic Church, it was the ex Mayor of Vieques from the pro-statehood, pro-U.S. party was with us, the president of the Vieques Commerce Association, <coughs> a 73-year-old veteran of the Korean War, among others. So we're in the bombing range, and Justino and I walk, you know, into what we believe is the direction of the bombing zone. We came across a lagoon with you know, bombs sticking out of the mud, and then we came to a place with uh, vegetation that was more than bushes, but not so much trees. And, and in these, uh, amongst the vegetation, we noticed a, a large number of canoe-like, metallic, thin canoe-like pieces, and they were, they were actually the halves of uh, dispersion bombs. I think there's another word for that. These are the bombs that are dropped that have a big number of small little bomblets wow. that were used extensively in, in the Mideast by the U.S. And it, 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 we heard a helicopter. We lay down on the ground to hide ourselves, put some vegetation on top of us, and we fell asleep, I remember. We were so exhausted. We fell asleep, and, uh, and that, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much longer. It was kind of dangerous, but, we, you know, we were, we were there. We were there for a mission, and, uh, I, you know, let me say, I was not a Boy Scout. I was never in the military. I'm not, you know, a macho kind of, you know, superhero kind of guy. I'm really, we were very scared. But we all were really committed to this and understood that this was, you know, these were dangers that we needed to take on. Uh, eventually, Justino and, I, Justino and I were lifted off the ground, literally, from the first explosion. And we were just sort of stopped and staring at each other. And I saw Justino's face and suddenly knew the meaning of the expression. His eyes were bulging out because his eyes were actually literally coming out of the socket. I mean, I was really freaked out because my guess was that my eyes must have looked the same. We were really terrified. And we we sort of automatically, instinctively started walking in the direction from which we came when we were stopped again in our tracks by a second really big explosion. And so I, I had my cell phone, I called the Peace and Justice camp and I said, hey, did you guys send out the press release? Oh yeah, it's on the news, it's on the radio. Well, you might want to do it again because we're in here and they're bombing. And so Hustine and I started walking, you know, in the direction to, to the beach where we came in from hoping to meet up with the others. And uh, eventually we, we got back and we spent the night there with all the other... Uh, Tato Guadalupe was one of the guys in there with us, one of the civil disobedient. He counted some close, somewhere close to 300 detonations and then he stopped counting, he just got tired of counting. Um, and eventually we were arrested. That's and an I incredible was, story. Yeah, and this was, you know, done by many, many people. I mean, uh, and a lot more people, more dangerous situations. I think my third arrest was in uh, April of 2002 kind of this coincided with the U.S. military-backed attempted coup against Chavez in Venezuela. And we were arrested in the bombing range. There were several of us who went in. And uh, we, in the morning, before they started bombing, I remember we shot up a flare, thinking that they would see this, realize that we're in the bombing range and not, not fire until they came and arrested us. And uh, so I remember with Iram Lozada at the time, who was the president of the... Uh, Human Rights Commission of the Puerto Rican Bar Association, and we're they, congratulating ourselves how good we are. I would, I just shot up this flare, and all of a sudden, it, it's an intense reverberating explosion from a gunship, you know, off the end. They began their maneuvers. I guess they didn't see the flare or they didn't care. 
And so we walked down to a place that had, you know, giant signs that said, you know, extreme danger, don't be here. And so we feel this must be the bombing range. And then we noticed, you know, the old tanks and other stuff. And some of the other guys who had come in with us the, that, that the night before appeared out of the bushes. And I think there were four of us um, uh, who were there. And we realized that the only way they're going to stop is if we actually stand on the targets. And so, so we stood, we, oh we got up on these mountains, these mounds that were uh, on the maps known as Ammo Dump 1 and Ammo Dump 2. And we're, you know, hoping, we're waving flags and we could see the observation post. It was a hazy morning and they started firing away and we're watching these shells come closer. Uh, you know, and we're seeing the smoke on the ground like a few hundred yards away and then you get a little closer. And these are these five inch rounds that shoot out of a giant cannon on a boat and and they're like big bullets right and eventually uh, some of them go right over our heads and into the water behind us and and I'm freaking out my saliva turns to chalk I can't really speak and someone said you know well, well that's the story they must see us why are they fighting and so Iram Losada said ah, of course they can see us they see it's Rabin that's why they keep firing and that was kind of a joke that I, I really couldn't laugh at at the time Eventually, they did spot us, we were arrested, and, and that was at the beginning of my six-month um, sentence in, in federal prison. But this type of action, again, you know, young people, school students, university students, older folks, veterans, a lot of priests, pastors, nuns, participate in this type of very dangerous operations that you know, people risked their lives for Vieques, and it was really inspiring, and, and obviously a privilege and an honor to participate but it's really inspiring to think of the number of people who actually put their lives in danger and their liberty at hock. And it was a powerful moment. And you know, through that action and so many other actions, you know, all types of people, uh, this small community with the support of the Puerto Rican nation and others who believe in peace and justice, without firing a single shot, defeated the most powerful military force in history. And that was in 2003 that the community finally was able to end the military operations right. in Vieques. And since then, clearly the community of Vieques has continued to struggle for justice and accountability in terms of cleaning up the effects of the military operations on the island. What are some of the community's main concerns and demands of the U.S. military? Well, we, in, in the Committee for the Rescue and Development of Vieques put out you know, a lot of documents where we listed the basic demands as the four Ds demilitarization, decontamination, devolution, or return of the lands, and development. Uh, we also add an S there for, for salud, which is health. So these are the basic demands now that a, that a cleanup process be transparent, that it be genuine, that it have genuine community participation. The lands that, are, that were controlled by the Navy for so long should be given back to the community. They're mostly still in the, under control of the Interior Department of the federal government and their Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, the Navy, the U.S. government refuses to accept any responsibility for the health claims, health damages on the island. Um, and, and in terms of development, we need you know, compensation by the Navy to uh, reconstruct a, a healthy Vieques economy after half a century of obstacles to any kind of real development here. So these are the basic demands. Uh, and these are, you know, this is this is the now the struggle of the people of Vieques into the future. And what steps has the US government taken to meet some of those demands if they if they've taken any? Yeah. Well because Vieques is a super fun site, uh, the Navy has to do some you know have to give the uh, impression at least that they're cleaning up. They've, I think, spent about $200 million so far, the federal government, on cleanup. That most of that money ends up in the coffers of large U.S. corporations that are hired for this. You know, there are dozens of people from Vieques working on the project, which is a positive thing. But uh, again, we believe it's not a genuine cleanup, that the Navy has no real desire to fix Vieques, but just to go through the motions. And as I mentioned, the federal government refuses to accept responsibility for the health crisis in great measure due to their presence here. Uh, so, you know, uh, we have very little faith and trust in, in the federal government. So we need to look for community-based mechanisms to continue to demand the government be responsible, but also look for other more creative and, and community locally based uh, uh, ways to find people in solidarity, entities in Puerto Rico, the U.S. and in other places to help us get through this and get over this crisis and move forward. Well, we just started a new year, 2016. 
What hope do you see for the community in Vieques in terms of creating the well-being that the community wants to see on this island and in Puerto Rico in general? You know, there's always hope, right? I mean, we the, the last thing we ever want to lose is, is that. And um, despite the enormous obstacles that Vieques faces uh, as the rest of Puerto Rico and, and many people in the world, right? there's a, a world crisis right now in, in values and morals and money and other stuff. But, you know, Vieques has a, a long history of struggle and resistance. Uh, you know, 4,000 years of historic social, economic, cultural development centuries of struggle by indigenous people, the Tainos versus the Spanish, I mean the Taino people here fought to the death to defend Vieques, uh, enslaved Africans and other sugarcane workers here in the 19th century carried out you know, enormous action uh, to defend their dignity and their well-being. Um, uh, sugarcane workers in 1915 carried out an intense struggle, a big strike here again in defense of decent wages and, you know, for decades, people of Vieques, men and women and children, fishermen and others, carried out an enormous struggle that, as you said at the beginning, has become an example to people throughout the world fighting for peace and justice, fighting against militarism, colonialism, imperialism. Um, so, you know, in that context, uh, you know, this gives us hope. The more we learn from the greatness of the power of an organized community, the more we can get over our uh, individualisms and our arrogances and, and learn to work and learn from others, uh, learn from our mistakes, become more um, capable of self-criticism and, and collective criticism and collective congratulations as well. You know, we, we need to learn from the, the powerful experiences that Vieques has had and learn from others as well. Uh, and I think, you know, all of this it gives me hope that you know Vieques, uh, uh, you know, has a has great potential to to also be an example of a small community that can deal with the issues of you know decontamination, health issues, and create a, a social and economic program based upon love instead of hate, peace instead of violence, the collective instead of the individual, goodness instead of badness. Well, thank you so much, Roberto, for letting us come in, for talking with us and sharing this amazing history of the community of Vieques and the struggle to really create a more peaceful and beautiful uh, place to, to live in here in Vieques. For our listeners who would love to get more information about the history of Vieques, of the struggle to expel the U.S. military from the island, where can they go to or where can they get more information about the museum here that you direct at the Fort Conte Mirasol? I think people can you know, check us out on Facebook. There is a Facebook page for the museum called Museo Fuerte Conde de Mirasol. Uh, you can check out my own Facebook page with my name, Roberto Rabin. Uh, Radio Vieques also has a Facebook called Radio Vieques. And uh, for more information you know, on these topics, you can also send an email to Radio Vieques uh, email, info at radiovieques.net. Again, info at radiovieques.net. Well, I definitely recommend that our listeners check out Radio Vieques. It's an amazing radio station. I know I try to tune in when I can. So thank you once again for speaking with us. Thank you. Rican Salsa Band Orquesta El Macabeo. De la pompa que perdida son semillas. 
La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I have the pleasure of having Jose Ibanez on the line with me. He is the bass player for the Puerto Rican salsa band called Orquesta El Macabeo that has been capturing the attention of salsa music lovers from all over. Bienvenidos, Jose. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And I am very happy to be sharing my music and my ideas with you guys and all the people that are listening. Well, I was recently in Cali, Colombia this past January for one of the world's most famous salsa music festivals called La Feria de Cali. And I was so impressed on how much Colombians love Puerto Rican salsa. There was hundreds of stands selling the music of Puerto Rican salsa greats like Ismael Rivera, Rafael Cortijo, and groups like El Gran Combo and Fania All-Stars. And right next to these classics was the music of Orquesta El Macabeo, representing a new generation of salsa musicians from Puerto Rico. Tell us who's in the band and how you all came together to make music. I have uh, been working in the recording studio and I just had the idea like two or three years that maybe someday I, I could gather with some of my friends to jam some of our favorite salsa songs. As you know, here in Puerto Rico, salsa music is everywhere, you know. You grow up with that. doesn't matter if you're a metalhead or a rapper or whatever. Uh, you grow up uh, listening since you were born. So we had that in our brain, in our subconscious. And I just gathered a few friends that, that play different instruments to, you know, just to jam our favorite songs without pretexto, you know, without any reason, you know, just for fun. And as soon as we gathered, we started creating uh, original songs, and then we, we took it a little more serious. It's like the snowball that has been growing and growing and growing, and it is what it is right now, you know. Well, you clearly have salsa in los corazones de ustedes. Who are the members of the band? Okay, so yo, Jose Ibañez, in the bass, uh, on the trumpets, uh, we have uh, Gabriel Bochamp and Horacio Alcaraz. On the voice is Luis de la Rosa. And backing vocals and maracas, Javier Santiago. Piano and backing vocals, eh, Aníbal Vidal. And Josef Soto on the sax. Hector Lin on the trombone. And on the percussion, I have Julio Ortiz in the congas. Enrique Chavez on bongo and campana. And Manuel Berrios Vega on the timbales. While you have your own unique sound, your music also follows in the footsteps of Salsa Dura or Salsa Gorda of the 1970s that came out of New York. What drew you all to create that kind of salsa instead of maybe Salsa Romantica? I think that uh, one of the reasons that we started jamming all these songs is because the music that we like was uh, the music that was in the 60s and in the 70s that eventually became uh, salsa, you know. We like that kind of attitude that they had because it was a music for the people, you know, uh, with lyrics of what is happening around. Everyone feels identified. And we wanted to recreate, or not recreate, but take it as an example of music because the lyrics were very important. They tell stories. They have uh, social critics, everything. No, the music was so genuine. In my personal opinion, a romantic salsa is when the salsa became a product, you know, a business, commercialization. And we wanted to stay to the roots in lyrics and in sound. But we have so many people in the orchestra and everyone has their favorite music or some come from reggae and ska bands or plena. Some comes from heavy metal, some comes from punk or hardcore. So when we create the songs, we try to gather ideas from everyone. And that is what I think that gives us that special sound. And also all the music is made by ourselves and also the lyrics. I think that half of the band have written songs for Orquesta Macabeo. Well, I was just about to ask you about the lyrics. I think one of the best parts of the music of Orquesta Macabeo are the lyrics, which oftentimes captures day-to-day life using humor and references that resonate with those that listen to your music. And much like the greats of salsa like Ismael Rivera, who also talked about day-to-day life in Puerto Rico, what motivates you all when you write music and what do you want to express to your listeners through your music? In my personal case, I come from punk and hardcore bands. I still play with them. And uh, everyone knows that these are bands, most of them, the principal idea is to make a statement with your lyrics and carry a message. I think it's important that you can drop one line in the whole song or a few lines or seven paragraphs, whatever, but it has to say something, you know? 
I don't want to feel empty just uh, writing music about ah, uh, dance, ah, uh, the party in the corner is on fire or whatever, you know. I really want to say uh, some message. And I'm very happy when the people get it and understand and feel identified. Well, let's take a listen to one of your songs. Let's start off with a song, Lluvia con Sol, by Puerto Rican salsa band Orquesta El Macabeo. Tienes 11 grandes amigos Tú lo pasas bien bonito Cuéntame 
by the Puerto Rican band Orquesta El Macabeo. We're speaking with Jose Ibanez, the bassist for the band, about their music. So, Jose, tell us a little bit about that song. I think it's one of my favorite songs of the orchestra, and it's always the song that I use as a reference when I have to show the band for the first time to someone that doesn't know anything, you know, about us, because I think it's a very complete song in lyrics and in music. And the lyrics are especially made for our life in Puerto Rico, but it can apply to everywhere because it has crisis everywhere, you know. Uh, the idea is like you try to move a step forward and there's always someone or something that keeps putting you stones in the way. It's hard to grow uh, as Puerto Ricans, and everyone knows now the situation that the country has, that there's no money, etc., etc., you know. And we feel that you try to give one step and someone push you to take two to the back. So that's the idea on the song. Well, it's a great song, and I know that you all have been gaining a lot of popularity. I know that you regularly perform in Puerto Rico, and you were actually part of the lineup for the four-day-long Fiestas de la Calle de San Sebastián in Puerto Rico this past uh, January, but you also recently came back from a tour in Mexico. Tell us a little bit about that tour and other international places that you've been playing. Mexico uh, was amazing. We were so impressed that our music was well known there and the people were so lovely, you know. They made us feel that we were making something special for them. And it was very productive because we went only for Mexico City, but you know how big is that city. So we played three shows there and had some interviews in very important radio shows and made some very good contacts for trying to go again uh, before the year uh, finished. So it's beautiful. I want to do that for a few more places in America, you know, in Central or South America. Also, we've been a few times in the United States. We've been in New York and St. Louis and uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Richmond, Chicago a few times. Also, we've been in Spain and in France. Well, that sounds very exciting for you all. Let's take a listen to another one of your songs. This time the song is called Utenasia, and that's again by the Puerto Rican salsa band Orquesta El Macabeo. Tiempo. 
aquí esperando el fin. Y vivo sin vivir en mí, con la esperanza de morir alguna vez. Me apagaré. That was the song Utanasia by Puerto Rican salsa band Orquesta El Macabeo. We're speaking with band member Jose Ibáñez, who joins us on the line from Puerto Rico. So tell us a little bit about that song, Jose. Uh, that song is a very special song for us because it's an, a vinyl EP that we released uh, with the record label from Spain called uh, Vampy Soul. And it includes two songs of our interpretation of punk bands from Spain, from the Basque country in Spain. So we choose these two favorite bands that we have and figure out it could be possible to transform it from punk to salsa. And that is the, you know, el resultado. Well, it's a great song, and I know the band has been playing together for quite some time now. You all started in 2008. It's been almost 10 years. How do you think the band's music has evolved over all this time? It has evolved a lot, and I think that in three or four years or five, it's going to be evolving every time, you know. You begin to understand each other better when creating ideas for exploring uh, new horizons. Uh, we have no limit. You know, if we have some part that maybe we say, hey, that, that doesn't sound so much for the salsa rules. But if we like it, we do it. And it's not that we're making a fusion. It's just that I think that music doesn't need any boundaries or rules. And one of the things that we think about when we're creating songs, don't give up about that crazy idea that you have. If it's good, we're going to use it. Well, it's been great to have you on the show tonight and have you share with us the music of Orquesta El Macabeo. I know listeners were at home listening and dancing in their living rooms or in their kitchens like me here in the studio as we were playing the music. How can listeners get more information on the band and get a hold of your music? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can follow us any uh, digital places. Also, our official website is uh, orquestaelmacabeo.com. And Facebook, Twitter, uh, you can find us everywhere, you know. Take five minutes to explore our work. And we'll definitely link to some of your work through our Facebook page. And of course, we'd love to hear you all perform live here one day in the Bay Area and have you on the show again. And hopefully um, you'll come on and share our music again with our listeners. I will work on that <laughs> to make it happen very soon. I won't forget Me quedo cuando duermo con el cigarrillo y me quemo. Vaya postura, me quedo trapuesto de mente soñando locuras. Vaya desgracia que quemo la manta en la cama, la casa y yo no me entero. Yo no me entero ni sufro ni padezco. Estoy casi muerto. Yo no me entero Porque de las palabras Que siempre son 
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you would like to hear this program again or share it with others, you can go to kpfa.org or find us on SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Make sure to like us on Facebook for more news, arts, and culture desde el mundo latino. And of course, we love to hear from our listeners, so please share with us your thoughts and feedback by writing to us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. Hasta la próxima.